I'm happy to share the, the information that I have on fibromyalgia. The objectives that I want to present today is uh, most of all to review the pathophysiology and presentation of chronic musculoskeletal pain, uh, specifically fibromyalgia, and emphasize on the fact that fibromyalgia is and was still a diagnosis of exclusion. I will talk about the different neural pathways that are involved in the modification of chronic musculoskeletal pain. And um, at the end, I will identify treatment modalities. But there's not, nothing really much new about treatment modalities at this point, so I will just summarize what we have done and what, what's currently available. So for, for most of you, this is uh, very familiar. This is a slide about the prevalence of fibromyalgia. It's highly prevalent illness. Um, it occurs between two to six to eight percent in the population, depending on the definition of fibromyalgia. And it afflicts mostly women, and in some of the definition, it's the ratio of nine to one, uh, women to men, and in the newer definition, it's a ratio of approximately six to one. So to get right into the topic, um, I wanted to show how patients really experience their illness, and this is one of the patients' de depiction of pain. And as you can see, contrary to the belief that many providers have, fibromyalgia is not generally experienced as pain all over. As it's usually described, patients are very, very well uh, ready to identify specific pain areas that particularly give them trouble, and this is depicted here and the reason for this was um, a large topic of uh, my investigations. Why is pain experienced differently in different areas by, by chronic pain patients like fibromyalgia? So the role of chronic pain is emphasized in the definition. I will briefly explain some of the newer definition of fibromyalgia to you for those of you who are not familiar with the newer definition. And show you that chronic widespread pain is the hallmark of the def definition, all of them. There are about 10 different fibromyalgia definitions available right now, and the most uh, used one is the 2010 revised uh, uh, definition for, chronic, uh, for, for uh, fibromyalgia. So here is the definition of chronic widespread pain. It's uh, a widespread pain index where the body diagram is, is divided into 19 different areas, and the, 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 the pain has to be present for at least three months. And then there's a score of s symptoms here uh, that have, in the old definition, the currently definition, have, uh, need to last over at least one week. And the most important ones are fatigue, waking up, non-refreshed, and cognitive difficulties. So one of the main symptoms that fibromyalgia patients complain of, which is fiber fog, where memory difficulties occur. Many individuals uh, do not feel they continue their profession because they can't um, keep in mind what, what uh, needs to be done for a particular task, and they often quit their jobs for this particular reason. So 
Then in the 2010 definition, there was a complex symptom set of 41 different symptoms. They're somatic symptoms. They range from sweating to uh, increased heart rate to um, feeling pain, uh, having headaches, and so on. And in order to uh, be considered positive for the fibromyalgia definition, you had to have at least seven pain areas and a whole number of um, somatic symptoms, or if you had uh, five uh, different pain areas, you had a, com a comparison score of symptoms of seven. Now, the problem with this particular definition was that it didn't prevent the occurrence of symptoms in one very specific area. So, for example, it's entirely possible that someone had just pain in the right leg and in the right arm. You could easily come up with five different pain areas. And so the discussion ensued if this is sufficient for chronic widespread pain. And then subsequently, and I will tell you more about this, the definition was changed to address this particular issue. But nevertheless, widespread pain is the most critical symptoms for the definition of fibromyalgia. So here now, this is where this had, has been addressed. Um, white pain area, widespread pain has now been defined as pain in at least four or five regions. And I'll show you the regions in a minute. Um, but there's still, a widespread, there's still a widespread pain index to be, to be considered. Um, where any one of these areas here uh, need to be counted so that at least the number four to six or five, so four is the minimum of widespread pain areas and um, then uh, individuals need to have a, a somatic severity symptom scale of either more than, equal to more than five or uh, more than nine. Now, the last point here is still contentious, where the, the author of this new definition, which is Fred Wolf, um, talked about that fibromyalgia diagnosis is valid irrespective of other diagnoses. And this is controversial because um, many chronic pain disorders, including what we heard uh, this, uh, this morning, back pain, IBS, individuals have symptoms that are very similar to fibromyalgia symptoms in terms of pain symptoms. And the reason for this uh, is in particular that uh, the term fibromyalgia was, con uh, was coined to, to capture the gestalt of uh, fibromyalgia feelings that individuals complain of. And the, uh, the, the, the major problem with this approach, however, is that uh, most, if not all, of the current studies have been done with definition that did, did not include this particular feature. So we, as valid as the definition may be at this point, there is not sufficient evidence to really support that this is a valid construct. So I wanted to show you here the different regions. So there are, four, there are five different pain regions. So um, this, the, these different areas are all one region here, the two upper regions, two lower regions, and the spinal region. These are the five pain regions that um, are, have to be considered for, uh, to be present in order to qualify for the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. Uh, 
Now, I mentioned before that the 2010 criteria had this huge amount of somatic symptoms, up to 41 symptoms, which are unmanageable for most offices and physicians. Um, this has also been changed in a much, to a much smaller number here. Uh, what's still present in the definition is uh, the presence of fatigue. Patients have to be waking up unrefreshed and cognitive symptoms, including memory problems. But the, the rest of the symptoms now has been uh, decreased to the presence of headaches, pain, cramps in the abdomen, and depression. So much easier diagnosis to be made. And um, as I mentioned, the, it has to be seen if this is a definition that uh, will find widespread use, use in, the, in the near future. So the uh, focus, as I mentioned before, is still on widespread pain. Uh, at least seven uh, pain areas of 19 pain areas. Here, these are the, the pain areas uh, in the somatic symptom score of uh, equal or more than five. And if you have very few pain areas, then the symptom score has to go up to nine. So we asked the question, what is the difference or what makes the difference from fewer pain areas to more pain areas in terms of the, the, the pathology of this particular condition. And the first step or one of the steps that we took is we looked at studies that have been done. These studies have been done in Great Britain and included an, up close to 35,000 individuals and we had access to the data. So we took the data and these were predominantly studies that were not pain focused. So at least had some semblance of um, a population type study, except the kid with low back pain study. This was a back, this was a pain study. Everything else was not a pain study. So there are six studies that were used in order to, for us to try to answer the question, what is the difference? Do we really need four areas, five areas, or fewer pain areas? And what is the determinant that makes certain pain areas, or the number of pain areas more important um, than, than others. So the, uh, in the original study, um, they had 35 pain areas. This was for multi-site pain because these were arthritis studies. These were studies of the general population. And uh, we compared them to widespread pain to the 1990 uh, fibromyalgia criteria. So 1990 criteria meant in fibromyalgia you needed to have pain the right side of the body, the left side of the body, the upper half of the body, and the lower half of the body. That was the definition of widespread pain. So this was what it was compared to. So just to show you here, and I hope you can read this, the composition of the study population. These were middle-aged individuals, except the kids study here, the kids with pain. Um, about half of the, the population were female, and the uh, about half of the individual in this study, except the kids' study, uh, had, uh, had no pain. Um, of the individuals who had pain, uh, about two-thirds had regional pain, and about uh, 10 to 20% had chronic widespread pain. So chronic widespread pain 
required the fulfillment of the condition that it had to be present for at least three months. And then there were individuals with widespread pain, they had just four weeks, uh, did not fulfill the, the time condition. So this study showed that the prevalence of chronic widespread pain was um, approximately but larger population studies have shown between 12 and 17 percent, uh, but importantly that mental and emotional symptoms were the most important predictors for the relevance of reporting pain and this relationship was not different between local pain and widespread pain. Importantly, the number of pain errors, however, and the duration was critical. So the more pain areas individuals have, the more they, they, they fulfilled symptoms of chronic pain and, and eventually fibromyalgia. So we looked at the fact whether the pain areas could be random or if there is reason why certain pain areas are more relevant for patients. And what we did is we looked at fibromyalgia patient and had them fill out pain diagrams like this where they shaded in painful areas. And in these pain diagrams, we noticed that certain pain areas were preferred or were preferably uh, depicted by uh, fibromyalgia patients. And these pain areas are depicted here. They're in a great majority they're in the upper portion of the body. There are some areas in the, in the thighs, and there are some areas in the, in, the, um, in the lower back, but the majority is in the upper body, in particular the shoulders, the arms, the neck, the, the, the deltoid muscles. And when we, when we uh, did regression analysis on the predict predictability of these areas, which was uh, entered here uh, in, in, a, in conjunction with negative mood and the ratings of local pain. These combined use of all these particular factors explain a very high number of the variants of, of clinical pain that these individuals uh, showed up to 55%, again indicating that pain errors are critical for chronic pain in this particular population. Now, the next question was, where is the pain coming from? So it's, for, for all of you are clinically involved in the care of these individuals, you may agree with me that very few individuals will say, my skin hurts. Almost all individuals would say, I have pain in deep tissue, it's an aching pain, it's not something that I feel on the surface and I cannot uh, do anything for the, the, the pain that I have um, in, in these deep tissues. So we looked at the evidence and we did studies on the, the most likely source for pain in this population, which is the muscles. So the the search for, for reasons for, for, for deep tissue pain uh, is going on for a long time, um, in 1990, uh, and subsequently studies have been performed where microdialysis catheters were implanted into muscles of chronic pain patients, and then uh, high, high increased numbers of substance P, which is a, a, a pain mediator, 
as well as prostaglandins and glutamate were, were found uh, here, as well as serotonin. Now, when the findings were used in modeling chronic pain, it was apparent very early on that by injecting these, mus these substances into the, the muscles of normal participants, no chronic pain could be elicited. So the search subsequently focused on algesic substances, and the, the major algesic substances that seem to play a role in chronic musculoskeletal pain disorders are acid, hypertonic saline, ATP, neuropeptides, and the, the most important receptor systems are the, the TRIP receptors, the ASICs, as well as the purinergic receptors. So we have a whole system that um, can sense these particular mediators, and I will tell you in a minute where these mediators uh, are coming from, most likely. So I, I'll show you first the experimental evidence for the importance of these mediators, and here this is a study done by Alan Light, who looked at the, impo the importance of these mediators, um, and you sh I show you here on the, um, the x-axis the change in pH of substances that were uh, injected into animals, because here this is the activity of DRG, dorsal root ganglion, uh, was measured to see how they, these animals respond to these mediators. And you can see when the, the pH was lowered to relatively low pHs, there was no activity change detected. When, um, when other substances were included, for example, this is lactate, um, there was only with very high concentration uh, a change was detected, and the, the, the similar with ATP. Um, however, when all the substances were combined, significant pain could be elicited, or significant TRG responses could be elicited in, in, the, in these dorsal root ganglion, and they lasted for prolonged periods of time. Now, how does this translate to the human experience? So one of the first studies that has been done in this regard was an ultrasound study of blood flow in the the deltoid muscles of human individuals, uh, normal controls here on the left side, and fibromyalgia patients on the right side. And what is depicted here is the blood flow that can be detected by Doppler techniques during contraction of the deltoid muscle. When you look at this here, you see in the normal individuals during contraction, minimal blood flow uh, and no blood flow in fibromyalgia patients when contrast was added, the same condition otherwise, you see that there is um, fairly significant blood flow in normal controls and minimal blood flow in patients with fibromyalgia. Now, if, for example, this is one of the reasons for the signaling that occurs in these particular pain population, the question is, um, how important is this in input? Uh, here, what is shown is the blood flow, in, which is measured with radioactive waters in patients with fibromyalgia here. These are the full circles compared to healthy controls. Um, and as expected, during exercise and contraction, 
you see a, a rapid decrease of blood flow in, the, in the, the, mother, the muscle that was tested, followed by a rapid uh, increase of blood flow after exercise. However, in patients with fibromyalgia, again, the, the blood flow was delayed and was never reached the same level as in, uh, in, no, in healthy controls. Similar changes were found in the, the generation of metabolites. Again, here shown is during exercise, uh, metabolites here lactate. Here, this is pyruvate, this is glutamate here on this side. The, the metabolites go up, and the metabolites go up more in patients with fibromyalgia, and they decline slower in, in this particular population. And at, at a fairly long time, this is here, over 300 minutes, there is still a significant difference between these two populations. So indicating, again, that more metabolites are generated in this population, and the duration of these metabolites that can be measured subsequently is prolonged. So what we did is we put this to the test and compared the, uh, the symptoms of fibromyalgia patients in healthy control during exercise to compare bo both, and we used arm exercise for this purpose, and the, uh, the exercise that both populations went through was exercise to exhaustion. And we did this multiple times. Um, so to show you here, to see if high, high amounts of exercise are symptomatic for these individuals. So that there's rhyme and reason why they hurt, why they hurt more under certain circumstances, uh, and what, uh, then to speculate what the particular reason could be for these, uh, for these symptoms that individuals have. So here, this is the study duration. Uh, the study duration had, had several, um, several intervals where there's a rest period and an exercise period, a second rest period, in a, in a second rest uh, exercise period. And in uh, broken lines here is the fibromyalgia individuals in, those, in the full lines here, the, the healthy control. And as I mentioned, the exercise was to exhaustion. Healthy control had pain during exercise, like uh, what, uh, what was expected. But similar to healthy control, but at a much higher level than fibromyalgia, than healthy control, fibromyalgia patients responded. So they had clinically relevant pain levels of more than five, whereas healthy individuals had only pain level of um, about three on a scale from zero to 10. And this was, could be repeated over and over again. So to indicate that exercise is associated with pain, in this, uh, significant pain in this particular population. Now, the question is now, how is it signaled? Where is it going? And what are the, the, the processing steps that occur in healthy controls as well as patients with fibromyalgia? So we have recently started examining spinal cord samples of um, fibromyalgia patient and healthy control, and we did this with functional imaging. So the technique of functional imaging of the spinal cord has advanced enough that we now can see where in the spinal cord activity occurs during particular um, times of 
an experiment. So you're all familiar with um, a brain scan or with a scanner, an fMRI scanner that is, is used for this particular activity. And the important contrast that is generated during, during scanning in fMRI is the contrast that is generated by the paramagnetic substance which is de deoxygenated hemoglobin. This is a substitute for perfusion and use in tissues, and in particular in nervous tissue, that we otherwise uh, don't have access to. Um, when this becomes oxygenated again, it becomes uh, diamagnetic magnetic, and can be used for generating contrast. So when, for example, neural tissue is active, it generates deoxygenated uh, hemoglobin, and we can see it. So we know what metabolic activity and blood flow estimates uh, uh, are in, in the tissue study. So here, this is now the spinal cord experiments. Uh, we have done this. This is a, uh, a second study. This is just confirming similar findings that we found. This is a 2014 study where the spinal cord activity was measured from uh, C8. Here, actually, this is T1. Uh, to, to C4. We have done spinal cord experiments where we, we could see the activity from, from C8 to the brainstem. So we went further up to see what the uh, activity was like. And one of the important parts here is you see all these dots of activation. Is, this is a resting scan. That means the individual was doing nothing, was just resting in the scanner and it showed still synchronous activity, similar to the brain. So there's a resting state network in the brain, and what we and others have found is there's also a resting state in the spinal cord, and the resting states of these two entities, the brain and the spinal cord, they communicate with each other. So the, the spinal cord knows what the brain is doing, and the brain knows what the spinal cord is doing without anything happening. So there, this... To, to depict this for everybody, that essentially the spinal cord is part of the central nervous system organ that is operant, operative all the time. They communicate, they, um, they send each other information. So what we have done is we looked at the response of the spinal cord to painful stimulation. And we used the temporal stimulation paradigm, which is a test of central sensitivity changes, where... I'm showing this here. Here's the paradigm where multiple rapid stimulation of the same intensity result in increased pain. And then in, in uh, sometimes prolonged after sensation. And we, the, the rapid stimulation happened at a frequency of 2.5, one every 2.5 seconds, which is too short for the system to reset, that's why the system increases or, or provides more, more pain experience for the participant. And we contrasted this to a much slower stimulation rhythm, which is the same amount of stimuli, but now one every five seconds. So we doubled it, um, and we looked at the difference between in activation between these two conditions in the spinal cord. So we did this in the in segments here, again, in, from C6, which is the, the stimulation was applied to the hand. The dermatome of the hand is C6. 
So we looked particularly in C6 what the activity showed uh, according to the process that we provided. Um, from C6, and then we also looked what the acti activity in the brainstem uh, was during the same condition. So here you can see that in the TSSP, which is the temporal summation condition, there is um, less activity in, uh, in the um, TSSP condition. In, in the NTS, it's the nucleus tractus solitaris, um, compared to the control, which is the slow condition. And the, the RVM, which is a, um, an area of pain modulation, also shows slower, less activity here uh, in the TSSP condition compared to the control condition. When we looked at the, uh, the spinal cord activity, we saw most of the abnormalities in regards of the after sensation. So this, the, one of the characteristic features of fibromyalgia is long-lasting pain after a stimulus has been applied. And this could be shown here that after... Um, many, many minutes, uh, it was up to 15 minutes we did this afterwards, we saw still activity in the spinal cord according to the report, the self-report that, that the, the participants provided. So showing again that uh, the spinal cord responds to, to stimuli and that the reporting that individuals provide is, uh, can be seen and can be detected um, in, in particular areas of the spinal cord that, that make anatomical sense. So let me move on to the next question. So the spinal cord information, what, what happens when it reaches the central nervous system or when it reaches the brain? So for those of you who are not doing this all the time as, as I do, um, here's the spinothalamic tract or one of the spinothalamic tracts uh, providing the information from the dorsal horn of the spinal cord to the brain here. Uh, usually, um, we depict this as information that reaches the thalamus, uh, then goes from the thalamus to the insula, the insula then to the somatosensory cortex. There's, there's the, so this is the, uh, the premotor cortex. And then the, the limbic circle here, which includes the anterior cingulate, which is here in green, uh, and the prefrontal cortex, which has... Uh, cognitions as well as pain modulation is one of the important functions of these particular areas. So this is the, the information that has been generated by animal experiments. This has been generated by uh, stimulation for patients in, during surgery. When areas were stimulated, we, we know where some of the information is going and uh, now with uh, brain imaging. So you can see that these, the same areas that are shown here, this is work by, by Abkarian, um, are shown on this side here. And now in, in sagittal images, this is a coronal images, um, you see the same uh, pain area here, thalamus in yellow, um, the S1 here in, in red, and, and then, then the, the thalamus yeah, here, here in yellow in, in all this particular area. So we can essentially reproduce with brain imaging the findings that have been done with, with direct uh, registration methods before. Now, one of the first questions that was asked after this was possible is, what do people report in terms of pains? Do 
people report predictably what the receptor system is telling them. And uh, for this particular purpose, um, Bob Cockrell performed very early on an experiment where he used increasing temperatures that were applied to to individuals' hand and then looked what is the brain response as well as the pain ratings that individuals have during these particular uh, experiments. So you can see that uh, temperatures of, uh, these are five-second stimuli of 50 degrees. They have uh, very high pain ratings. This was a scale, pain scale from zero to 20. Very high pain ratings, and it's, it's essentially a linear increase with temperature um, under these circumstances. And similar here on the, on the left side, you can see now the, the activation that occurs, and the critical point is that the, the activation, this is the, the results of aggression with temperature, that there's a clear linear relationship of stimulus intensity with brain activity. So that there are areas in the brain that reflect how much intensity has been applied to, the, to, the, to, the, to each individual and correlates with the pain ratings that the individuals provide. And this is done in several ways here. And you see them here, for example, one of the most important areas is the insula. And the insula will come up all the time. This is one of the most important areas of brain pain processing. And the modern methods, and I'll show you some of this, allow us to dissect the insula into very small uh, parts that we can really say exactly where in the insula the information is. And we, we, it is now known what these particular areas actually uh, provide in terms of processing. So the second important study is shown here. It's also done by Bob Cocker, which looked at the, the variability in pain experiences. So meaning that the same stimulus applied to a group of people in this, uh, for example, in, 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 this, in this room, would provide us with a bell-shaped curve that on one hand there would be individuals who find the same stimulus, minimally uh, aversive, and on the other side of the curve, individuals who find it highly aversive. And you see this here, high, moderate, and severe. So the same stimulus applied to a, to a number of individuals provides different responses. And the question was, does the brain show a correlation with reporting? And it does. Um, as you can see here again, um, these are high... High uh, responders, low responders, and it's just the contrast between high and low responders. In these sagittal images here, you can see that there is much more activation of uh, many, many areas that are associated with pain processing in the high responders compared to the low responders, so that there's um, a difference that at least partially explains why individuals experience something very, very differently. All of us probably experience uh, the same stimulus very differently. Now, this has been done in patients with fibromyalgia. To come back to our uh, um, patient group of interest, and as you can, sh can see here, this was done a study by, by, by Rick Gracely. Um, when he used now mechanical stimuli to the thumb, when he did this and used the same pressure uh, this is in red, is the fibromyalgia population. This is the normal population. He found a very significant difference in reporting. So the, 
barely any pain in the normal population, uh, fairly significant pain in the fibromyalgia population. Now what he did, he now made essentially normal individuals to fibromyalgia individuals. He increased the stimulus intensity until they reached the same average pain ratings as the normal controls have to see if under the same circumstance, the same reporting, if brain responses are different between this population. And as you can see here, um, fibromyalgia patients are red. So here, this is the fibromyalgia rating in red. The, uh, the same intensity pain uh, stimulation is in green. And when red is mixed with green, you get yellow. You can see where the similarities are here. So in, in the, uh, for example, here in S2, in the insula, there are all areas that light up in yellow where fibromyalgia patients, as well as normal control, seem to use the same parts of the brain for pain processing. So, now, over the last several years, the, uh, the question has been advanced, is there a signature for pain? So signature means that we really not look what happens when someone has brain, but that we could go into a population, for example, any one of you who has pain, but don't tell us. We can look in your brain and we can say, you have pain. Because the, the important part is there is no specific brain area uh, in the, uh, that is associated with pain. The, the brain areas, it's a combination, uh, act in combination, and the functional connectivity between these brainers is the best predictor for this. So, Torwager uh, did this study. Uh, he looked at, at, at several um, options. So, first of all, the signature for physical pain, which I think was probably a misnomer. What he meant was acute pain, uh, because it will come to chronic pain subsequently. And then he compared this, this the sensitivity of the signature with warmth, with recall. So just remember how pain was and see what the brain uh, reflects of this particular memory. And then the, the, uh, the problem of anticipation, that uh, you can anticipate pain, you essentially again activate uh, brain areas that are associated with pain processing. Um, the, uh, interestingly, he used social pain as a comparator. This means like a heartache or um, being distressed and being distressed to the level that you, that you report this as painful. And then he looked at the signature with an opioid. So here, to make this long story short, he found a pain signature. Um, here, this is sagittal images again. Uh, and he used machine processing, which is an uh, elaborate method of statistical methods to, to find uh, relationships between different factors here. And uh, he, you can see here that uh, multiple of the brain areas that we talked about, here is the anterior cingulate, for example. Here is again cingulate. Uh, this is the, the areas of the insula, and he dissected this into multiple different areas, and which one are most predictive of pain. And then could show that, for example, here, that uh, the pain signature was clearly different from signatures of any of the control conditions. So 
uh, essentially showing that with high sensitivity and specificity, uh, acute pain can be detected. Now, the subsequent study was then on the, the signature of fibromyalgia pain. And as this turned out to be, of course, much more complicated now because these are now individuals who have chronic pain. So what, what uh, collaborators of, of his group did in 2000, and reported in 2017, they looked at, the, uh, at several factors first. First, they applied the, the pain signature to these individuals, and then they added something else, which, which is really fibromyalgia pain, per se, and as well as uh, somatic symptoms. Um, so in the pain signature, um, there are three different ways he generated a pain signature. This is the pain signature of fibromyalgia patients. This is the pain signature of normal controls. And this is the pain signature of normal controls when they received mechanical stimuli that again provided the same pain ratings as fibromyalgia patients. And here's the brain imaging. Again, multiple of the brain areas that I've talked about um, um, can, be, can be identified. Um, for example, here this is multiple parts of the insula, which is like the, one of the most critical areas of pain processing. And the differences that, that are detectable between these different conditions. Um, the, the areas of the pain signature of, uh, of fibromyalgia patients was particular identified in the, in the insula, again, as I mentioned, as this is one of the most important areas. And then statistic comparison, this is the mediation analysis were done, how much of the, the, uh, um, the report uh, pain ratings uh, are dependent on, on different factors, uh, either on um, unpleasantness factors or pain intensity factors. So, but the second part, which was uh, as important, I think, is the, the brain imaging um, of what's called fibromyalgia pain compared to, um, I think what he called this, um, multi-symptom pain. Um, now, this depends on one of the, the areas of intense research at this time, which is whether individuals with chronic pain magnify or intensify only sensory signals uh, which are related to the pain, uh, to pain itself, or can they amplify also, or do they amplify signals that also are non-pain related? So for example, vision, auditory signal, uh, smell, taste, and so on. And there is some evidence and more and more preliminary evidence that chronic pain patients have a general amplification or can have a general amplification of symptoms. Um, the, uh, we, have, we, have, uh, we are working actually at, uh, on this at, this at this current time to um, get more information and we have seen in particular in the, in the auditory testing that fibromyalgia patients clearly experience sound more intense and often more unpleasant than healthy control. But anyway, now what, what is shown here in these images, in these, these particular patterns in 
is the activation and deactivation that occurs in fibromyalgia patients just because of their pain. As you see here, there's many, many areas of the brain are active at the same time, and uh, these, these uh, areas here in, in blue are, are deactivated. But when you do analysis, you find, again, a further analysis, you find that uh, it's only critical, very few critical areas actually contribute to the prediction of our myalgia pain. And this is, again, similar areas as we talked about before. It's the S1 cortex, uh, in particular the insula. There's many, many areas of the insula are involved again. And again, as before, it is the connectivity of brain areas that is abnormal. So fibromyalgia patients connect their brain areas differently compared to healthy control. And then here is the, this multi-symptoms. Uh, the same approach was taken with smell, um, touch, as well as here, not smell, um, vision, touch, and hearing. And again, the, the, the areas that are related, for example, here, the, the occipital cortex, uh, they were different in fibromyalgia compared to healthy control, and they, they predicted, interestingly, pain, whereas the fibromyalgia signature itself here, this part did not predict pain, it predicted distress, but not pain. So, uh, when rock curves were, were applied uh, with the, the, the signature of fibromyalgia pain, um, and all the, the three different factors were combined in the analysis, this is the, 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 the pain signature, uh, nociceptive pain signature here, this is the fibromyalgia pain pattern, this is the multisensory pattern, um, in this rock analysis, it achieved very high specificity and sensitivity of over 90%. So essentially, a very close approximation of how the diagnosis of fibromyalgia could be made by a particular brain signature under these circumstances here. And again, here, this shows just to separate the two. This is multisensory pattern. This is the, neuro, this is the nociceptive pattern. There's very little overlap between these two entities in terms of brain activity, and uh, here on this side are the correlations with, oops, are the correlations with, um, this is uh, the nociceptive pattern here, um, and what, what the, uh, the activity of the fibromyalgia pain pattern and the multisensory pattern predict, and like I mentioned before, the multisensory pattern predicted pain uh, the, the best. So, so just to, before, you, before uh, you go, I wanted to show you treatment, something about treatment, which is important and really fits with what I was telling you about the relevance of peripheral, um, peripheral input for pain processing. Uh, we did, for this particular purpose, we injected fibromyalgia patients with lidocaine. Um, we did not really look necessarily uh, what particular area in, these, in the shoulders we used. We used symmetrical areas on both sides because in our hands, all fibromyalgia patients had shoulder pain in, in the trapezius areas. We injected fibromyalgia patients in the buttocks here uh, on both sides and, uh, and compared this to, to um, normal saline injections. So here's just some information 
um, of the, the group that was done. They were middle-aged. They had fairly high uh, fatigue ratings. They had fairly high pain ratings. And they had moderate uh, depression and anxiety ratings. So the uh, injection in the shoulders the, to show that they were effective, you can see that after the injection, the, 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 the thresholds go up. Um, uh, in, with saline injection, and they go up with uh, uh, lidocaine injection. And the difference between these two injections was, uh, was, was significant. So lidocaine, as expected, was more effective in, 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 in improving pain thresholds. Um, it did not reach the same level uh, at, at the buttock level, the de-injection. Each area was, uh, was differently different afterwards, but the comparisons between those two areas showed that they were, um, there was no different in the amount of uh, improvement that individuals had. Then we looked at the effects of muscle injection on heat hypalgesia, um, which is, was applied with probes to the, in particular to the hands here, um, or the arms here and the legs. With this were very relatively low uh, intensity stimuli, 44 degrees Celsius. And here is the, uh, are the results in terms of pain ratings uh, by these particular interventions here. This is the saline injection before and afterwards. And this is here the lidocaine injection before and afterwards. Um, and they're statistically significant, these changes um, here. Um, and they're similar, similar findings could not be uh, uh, detected in the, at the legs. So interestingly, and this is just a, an unexpected effect, was that we looked at the uh, effect of these injections also on fatigue. Um, and interestingly, uh, that the fatigue in, the response to, uh, of fatigue uh, after the injections uh, were statistically significant and statistically more significant in the lidocaine condition compared to the normal controls. So, again, showing that there's a strong relationship between multiple of these factors. Um, we were very excited because it appeared that the pain processing and fatigue processing potentially uses similar information from the periphery and that the interruption of the information from the periphery could uh, be used as a, an effective uh, intervention. Um, it is just not known exactly for how long the intervention is rele relevant for individuals. If this is just in our hands, sometimes it, it lasts for, for weeks. Um, sometimes it's only just for days. But it's, it's definitely what, something that we're using very frequently for patients who consider themselves to be in crisis. They have enormously high pain level that we often bring them in for injections to at least get them over the hump until they can go back to physical therapy and can, can really appreciate some um, relief from their medications. So just to, to conclude, peripheral pain areas um, predict local, uh, and local pain, predict overall pain. The impulses from the periphery are critical for fibromyalgia. Um, we assume, at least we have some, some, some good evidence that muscle metabolites are at least associated with um, fatigue and pain. 
and that uh, the brain and the spinal cord informs about the mechanisms about. We really can get important information from these particular areas and uh, which will help in, in future treatments and also for future uh, categorizing of patients. And um, overall, fibromyalgia is a multifactorial pain disorder which depends on peripheral tissues, nociceptive input, and abnormal uh, central pain modulation. So I'll stop here, and uh, I'm available for questions.